0: I invite you to turn with me once again this morning uh, to the book of Esther, to the book of Esther, Esther chapter four, we come to week four and chapter four of uh, what has already begun uh, to be a riveting tale, uh, a tale so far of a beautiful young uh, Jewish woman and and her cousin swept up into the courts of the most powerful man in the known world at that time. How she got there was questionable, was was brutal, and yet she's there. And then last week we were reminded, uh, we saw that this enduring conflict, going back to the very beginning of time, was revived. And an evil scheme was introduced through an evil villain named Haman, a a powerful and and prideful enemy of God's people. And if you were here uh, last week, that is where uh, our story stopped. Those, uh, Those words are the words that we're hanging on. The last scene that we saw was two men drinking on a veranda, and a city in absolute chaos. Quite a striking scene. But even in the midst of that, undergirding this entire story, there is an unseen reigning king and an enduring salvation that remains that gives hope to seeming hopelessness. And so I want to jump back in and read today's portion, and uh, then uh, talk about it for a few minutes. Encourage you to listen once again. Esther chapter four, verses one through seventeen, which is the entirety of the chapter. You can follow along on the screen before you or in your own Bibles. This is God's holy word. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to give or to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach. And commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, Gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as we walk through this uh, next installment, this next episode of the story today, I want to explain what's going on in more detail, but I also want to leave you with two things. Two things for you to chew on as a family and in your community groups this week, and the first one is this. The eyes of faith see things as they really are. The eyes of faith see things as they really are. I want to begin with another verse from the Old Testament, 2 Kings six seventeen, And the verse is this, Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Now, if you know your Old Testament well, which is fine if you don't, this isn't a very well-known story it's not one of the main Old Testament Bible stories but uh, this verse this is the words of Elisha this is the words of Elisha on behalf of his servant his servant has woken up in the morning and the enemy is surrounding them the literal physical enemy of God's people is surrounding them and Elisha is calm and he prays that his servant will be able to see what's there and his servant's eyes are opened, and what he sees is around the hillside to his defense horses and chariots of fire. It's a verse I've read to you before when we've talked about spiritual realities around us and, and spiritual warfare, but it seems to me it fits here. This is not as, I mean, th- that this is more dramatic than anything that we find here in. Esther, but what I want us to see as we talk about this part of Esther's story is that in this story, there is spiritual sight that we need to learn from. In the visible absence of God, remember God's not mentioned at all in this book, the ability to see him and to live accordingly is right here. I mean, it's clear that things in Susa are not looking good. Esther and Mordecai are caught up in an evil that is outside of their control. And we wonder, how will they respond? How would we respond in a similar situation? Now, before we jump back into the story, uh, I want to say that there's a lot that we don't know about Esther and Mordecai. There's a lot we don't know about the motives behind their decisions, about what precisely they were thinking. And so we, we need to be careful that we don't speculate too much, that we don't definitively say too much precisely what's going on. We only know what the writer of Esther has revealed to us. Nevertheless, I think we see enough to be challenged and encouraged by these two, and to see this trajectory of growth from passivity to action, from silence to a voice. And as that comes to us today, it comes to us in the sense that not only is the Lord using and changing these imperfect instruments of Esther and Mordecai, but this same God who used them and, and grew them is the same God that knows us and loves us and will do the same with us. So let's jump back into the story. The decree has gone out. The day of destruction has been set. And you can almost put yourself back in ancient Susa when when uh, the king's officials would come to a certain uh, town, a certain region in the empire, and, and would read this decree, can you imagine? If you've ever seen the movie The Hunger Games, I kind of imagine it to be that moment when everybody's standing, waiting to see who is going to be part of the Hunger Game, and there's this, there's this anticipation, and then there's this silence, silence followed by gasps of horror followed by wails of pain. And that's where we find Mordecai as we pick up the story in verses one through three. It paints for us quite a picture, right? Gone are, gone are the days of Mordecai flying under the radar in the service of the king. He is now screaming, literally screaming in the streets of Susa. His, his clothes are torn, they're replaced with sackcloth. His head and toe are covered. They're ashen gray from the soot of a fire. He is grieving for all to see and he's grieving in a way that Jews typically did and not just Jews but those in the ancient Near East at this time did this kind of thing. With sackcloth and ashes, and it doesn't fit very well with our prim and proper European sensibilities, does it? But that's probably a good thing. Because some of us need to, to learn to better mourn, as opposed to bottling our emotions, because the laments of the psalms, they're raw and they're real. Maybe maybe on the lips of Mordecai as he cried and wailed in the streets were Psalm 140 verses 1 and 2 Deliver me O Lord from evil men preserve me from violent men who plan evil things in their heart and stir up wars continually It's not just happening with one man in the streets of Susa it's happening all over the empire to varying degrees, the wails are going out among God's people. They are in deep grief. And so Mordecai goes to the king's gate, at least to the entrance of the king's gate. Presumably he goes there in order to talk to Esther, but he's not allowed in. He's not allowed in because he's a mess. He looks a mess, he sounds a mess and you're not allowed to be a downer in the king's presence but he does get the attention of Esther who sends him some clothes and this is where the, the speculation begins. Why did Esther just send him clothes? See, some have wanted to say, well, Esther's just being callous here. She's just encouraging Mordecai to, to clean up and, and get dressed and, and get over it. But it seems to me the plain reading of the text is that she's giving him clothes so that he can come in, so that he can speak to her, so that she can get to the bottom of whatever is affecting him. Because as we're going to see, Esther's days of passivity, they seem to be coming to an end. She is growing from a young teenager into a young woman of strength. And it's clear that she too is deeply distressed at his distress. But he's too distressed to even accept her offer. and, And so she presses further. She sends her king, or excuse me, she sends her servant to get, to get more details, to get to the bottom of this. You see, Esther, Esther through no fault of her own, I think. She, she's in this bubble. Esther is in this bubble in the palace, a bubble of perfume and grapes, of silk sheets and attendants fanning her. She's clueless about what's going on around her. But here is where we see the beginnings of a growing Esther, a maturing woman using her power and her place on her own initiative. Yes, she may be genuinely unaware of the pain around her, but she's trying to get to the bottom of it. And Mordecai has the full story. He's got evidence, the evil scheme, the bribe, the devastating decree, and he also has a counterplan. Beg and plead. Verse 8. Beg and plead. Now Esther hears this and she, she thinks to herself, beg and plead, that is that's suicide. Number one, it's it's against the law. You can't just walk into the king. The king's got to invite you into his presence. And number two, any, any special exemption that Esther might have received as the prized newlywed wife of her husband, well, that's gone now. They've been married five years. The honeymoon, as they say, is literally over. And she hasn't seen him for 30 days. Chances are he's seen others in that 30 days. But he hasn't seen Esther. So Esther pushes back and Mordecai responds by laying it out there saying, Esther, if you don't beg and plead, two things, one of two things is going to happen. Number one, you're going to be found out and the decree is going to fall on your head too. Verse 13, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape. So, either that's going to happen, or number two, number two is a bit more curious. Verse 14, if you keep silent, you and your father's house will perish. Now, that's curious because it almost sounds like Mordecai is threatening Esther, but he's not. What I think Mordecai is doing there as he says that is he is invoking the covenantal connection between Esther and her God, between Esther and the rest of her family. And therefore, he is saying, if if she does nothing, she may be saved, but Yahweh, the Lord God, will eventually judge her, will eventually hold her to account. Well, let's just stop right there. So that's the scene, that's where we're at right now in the story. This is the moment I think where we really begin to see even in in, in vagueness what Mordecai and Esther are made of. And I think what we see in both of them is is not not perfection but the eyes of faith that see things as they really are. Just a few phrases give us this, this insight. Verse 14 from Mordecai. Relief and deliverance will rise. Relief and deliverance will rise. What's Mordecai? He, he's, he doesn't know where, he doesn't know how, but it will happen. He kind of couches this phrase in the middle of his instruction with, with Esther. We ask, Was well, this just wishful thinking, or is this the eyes of faith seeing life differently? than those around him? Is this a child of God, leaning on the promises of Yahweh's word, looking back and remembering all the stories of deliverance, recalling and resting secure in the promises made to Abraham that he will make a great nation out of this people? You see, from this this perspective, safety is actually found with the condemned Jews. Now, Mordecai is grieving. No doubt, he is grieving. He is scheming, trying to figure out how to get out of this. But at the end of the day, Mordecai is trusting. Relief and deliverance will come. But there's another phrase he says to Esther through her search... Through her servant. One of the most memorable phrases in the entire book, verse 14 Who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Probably one of the most familiar phrases that we think of when we think of this book of Esther. Essentially, Mordecai is saying, Hmm, maybe there is a purpose to all this that you've gone through, Esther. And we say, Of course there's a purpose. But we say that because we know the end of the story. They didn't know the end of the story. They're just living the story. For them, it wasn't so clear. And so Mordecai invites his own heart and he invites Esther's heart to ponder providence. To ponder providence. You see, this is what the eyes of faith do. They consider the wise ordering of everything in our universe for the good Though incomprehensible purposes of God. And so, yes, there's lament. Yes, there's planning. But at the end of the day, there's not despair because the eyes of faith see things as they really are. And so, it's wisdom for us to do the same thing. Let me give you some questions. Why am I in this neighborhood? Why am I at this job? Why have I been switched to this team? Why am I in the lives of these people? Why did that cashier just tell me a story of heartbreak in her life? You see, these are questions that recognize and want to participate in the work that God is doing. And this is just part of what what it looks like to walk with God. The eyes of faith see reality. They look beyond the circumstances. And while they can't explain everything, they know that everything is ultimately explainable before an omniscient and all powerful God. And then there's Esther. Esther. We've already talked about Esther being a woman who who is struggling between two kingdoms, two names, Hadassah and Esther. And there seems to be uh, here in this account today a decisive shift where we see three things really really start to come out with Esther. Number one is initiative. For the first time ever, ever, Esther is the one instructing Mordecai. Rather than just hearing, And following instructions from Mordecai. She's no longer just the passive teenager. She's coming into her own as a servant of the God of the covenant. Faith is the second thing. Up until this point, Esther's faith has been an absolute mystery, hasn't it? No reference to Yahweh. No reference to prayer. No reference to sacrifice. No reference to following his law. Nothing. But now, here in this account... In identifying with her people, and in identifying with the God of the covenant, what does she do? She calls for their support through fasting. All this feasting has been part of the book, and now suddenly we get to a fast. Esther knows that she needs spiritual support. And so she pleads through the eyes of faith for that which is called down as God's people humble themselves and plead in desperation. Even in this call to fast, though, it's interesting to note that God remains behind the scenes, right? There's still no explicit mention of God or Yahweh himself, and yet we know that when God's people fast, God's people fast out of dependence upon him and urgency, and often repentance and sorrow for sin. And sometimes a mixture of all of that. And so Esther calls and invites her people to fast and to support her in this way. Now this is a side note of this passage, but it, just, it reminds me again. Whenever I get to a passage about fasting, it makes me ask the question, when was the last time I fasted? When was the last time you fasted? not for health reasons but for spiritual reasons, to add urgency and fervency to your prayers. Esther is acknowledging that while Yahweh may be using her, this is not up to her. She needs him desperately. All of our plans need this perspective, don't they? And so Esther, we see her initiative, we see her faith, and then the last thing we see with Esther is risk. Verse 16, she says five words. If I perish, I perish. Now are those words of resignation to just what's inevitable? I don't think so. Not from what we've seen. These seem to be words entrusting herself to the will of her God. despite what she perceives, God might be up to in this situation through her, she recognizes that she might be wrong and that God might be doing something completely different. She doesn't know the outcome. She knows the risk. But she determines through eyes of faith that this risk is right. And that's what children of God Gifted with the eyes of faith belief. One pastor wrote this helpfully, I think. He says this, we are paralyzed to take any risks for the cause of God because we are deluded and think it may jeopardize a security which does not, in fact, even exist. Right? We live in a world where we're trying to do whatever we can to make ourselves safe. And yet ultimately, security is found solely in the hands of God. And so Esther is not being foolish or careless. She's walking in obedience and faith. Not confident of the outcome that she's going to get as she breaks this law and walks in with the king. But confident of the God who she serves. And in this respect, I think her actions are a challenge to us all. Gifted with the eyes of faith, we as God's people, we ought to often ponder providence. We ought to often take risks that are good and right. You know, as I thought about Esther's story, it's unlikely that any of us will have a defining moment like Esther. Right? She has this pivotal climactic moment in her life. Instead, you and I, and Esther, this is true of Esther too, we just don't see it, but you and I will have thousands of moments. right? As as Pastor Paul Tripp likes to say, 10,000 little mundane defining moments make up the character of our lives. Little moments to ponder providence, to take initiative, to consider the risk. Let me read a quote from him. Um, I love Paul Tripp. Anything with Paul Tripp's name on it is worth reading. "Most of us won't be written up in history books. Most of us only make three or four momentous decisions in our lives. And after several decades and, af- and several decades after we die, the people we leave behind will struggle to remember the events of our lives." Yet you and I live in little moments. And if God doesn't rule our little moments and doesn't work to recreate us in the middle of them, then there's no hope for us because that's where you and I live. This is where I think big drama Christianity gets us into trouble. It can cause us to devalue the significance of the little moments of life and the small change grace that meets us there. Because we devalue the little moments where we live, we don't tend to notice the sin that gets exposed there and we fail to seek the grace that's offered to us 10,000 moments of conviction 10,000 moments of humble submission 10,000 moments of sin confessed and forsaken 10,000 moments of simple yet courageous faith 10,000 moments of forsaking the kingdom of self and running towards the kingdom of God That's our lives how will we ever walk faithfully in those moments, in all of those moments? Well, Paul Tripp, he hinted at it already. And it's hope and good news that's found here this morning for us. And it's the second thing I want to leave you with this morning. One defining moment defines us all. One defining moment defines defines us all. Yes, I want you to see and be challenged by the eyes of faith that see things as they really are. But ultimately, this is not about Mordecai. This is not about Esther. This is about a God behind the scenes. And this is about a better mediator a better Savior to come. The year was 1988 and the singer was Whitney Houston. Maybe you remember this song. The occasion was the Summer Olympics. The song was One Moment in Time. I want one moment in time when I'm more than I thought I could be, when all of my dreams are a heartbeat away and the answers are all up to me. So inspirational, right? So epic for an Olympic Games, for a competition that athletes have trained their whole lives for. Maybe even a theme song for the book of Esther. But I don't... Sorry if I'm ruining this song that you have loved for years, but the answers are not all up to you. And we don't, most of us, live for one moment in time. But we are defined by one moment in time. You see, ultimately, Jesus is the hero here. He is the one that we need to see. Esther, an imperfect mediator sent to reverse the decree of an evil king, points us to Jesus, the perfect mediator, sent to plead our case and to pay our price before an all-righteous king. And so, brothers and sisters, the gospel is not ultimately about taking more risks or taking more initiative. It's about looking to the one who gave you all, even himself. Right? Esther's words were, if I perish, I perish. Jesus' words, not my will be done, but yours, he said to the Father. It was a will that sent him to the cross for you and I. Listen to the cries of Isaiah 59. On behalf of God's people, the prophet says, justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom for our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. The Lord saw it and it displeased Him because there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought them salvation. And so the Apostle Paul declared, and I declare to you from 1 Timothy 2, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom For all. This is, he is the defining moment that we all must be defined by. Living from that moment, being his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension from the grave. Living out of those moments, united to this Jesus, resting in that security, then indeed does ignite our hearts and equip us with the eyes of faith to see life as it really is, to take risks rightly put before us. Oh, that's good news. May God give us the grace to walk in this way. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this account and for the life of Mordecai and Esther, two imperfect servants who nevertheless remind us of what it means to walk with You. We're so thankful that our walk with You is not dependent upon us, but it is grounded in Jesus our Savior, the One who walked in perfection and righteousness as we could never walk. It's in Him that we hide. It's in Him that we are united to today. It's in Him that we want to abide. As we abide in our Savior and in His work on our behalf, may we indeed live as you call us to live. Not being sucked into the circumstances around us, but lifting our gaze, fixing our eyes on Jesus, fixing our eyes on your good providence and finding purpose and rest there. Now, Father, this I pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.